Hello, you're plugging into the Evolutions Message Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor CJ. Have a fantastic day. We'll see you at church. Every other day, um, for myself, I head down to the swimming pool in our building to do laps. And each time I spend about 45 minutes, about an hour in the pool downstairs. And I usually go when no one is around, okay? But a few weeks back, there was another girl at the pool, just me and her. And she's all decked out in her swim gear, cap, goggles, the works. So I assume she's there, like me, to swim. All right? Safe assumption. So I get in first, and about 10 minutes into my workout, I realize that this girl is not swimming at all. That for the last 10 minutes that I've been going back and forth, she has been at the same place at one end of the pool, water-resistant iPhone in hand, attempting to snap selfies of herself with the sun setting behind us. Now, I try not to be a busybody, and so I continue going on back and forth, back and forth, and another 15 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, and she's still there snapping selfies. Now, somewhere around... The 26th lap, because I have an uh, iWatch. 26th lap, she finally starts swimming, but she gets about one-third down the 25-meter pool. She stops and now tries to get the action shot, splashing about trying to pretend to freestyle. So by the time I finish, it's been 50 minutes and she's done maybe a maximum of two, two and a half laps in the pool. And the whole time I've been there, she's been trying to get the perfect Instagram shot. So I wonder how many of us here can relate to the video we just watched and this girl that I met at the pool. You know, even if we haven't been lying in our Instagram posts, we're at least guilty of taking an insane number of photos just to create one post, right? And definitely every single one of us here has felt the pressure of wanting to get as many likes and views as possible. Now, if that's you, don't feel bad because that's the story of our generation. The struggle in our generation is the struggle to be the real me, which is the title of my sermon this afternoon. You know, the biggest cost of maintaining our online selves is not the cost of time, how much we spend checking to see the number of likes that we've received, or even the cost of a better phone. And I know some people even buy apps, right, just to get their posts perfect. You know, the biggest cost really is actually, you know, the cost of maintaining our online personas, or rather not, you know, not just online, but just even living up to the everyday expectations and boxes and labels people put on us. You know, you can relate to that, right? The biggest cost of maintaining that perfect life is that it comes at the expense of our true selves. The ability for you to be confident and settled in your own skin, to know who you are, what you want, and to pursue it without any anxiety or self-doubt, to be your real self and to enjoy the process of creating your future. You know, mistakes, ugly moments, blunders, unglam moments and all. So, you know, one of the things I'm often asked as a pastor is, you know, recently, you know, is is there a difference between mentoring youth and young adults today as compared to, say, 10 years ago? And my answer to these leaders and pastors is always, yes, totally yes. Youth and young adults today, you guys struggle with anxiety more than I have ever encountered in all my years of leadership and ministry experience. And I say this not just about you, but I say this about myself too. Our generation struggles when it comes to knowing ourselves and being ourselves. And this struggle ends up costing us our potential. Costing us the joy and satisfaction that should come with living a full, realized, successful and abundant life. And that's a huge problem for me as a pastor because it completely goes against what I believe Christianity and my God is all about. You know, this weekend, we are celebrating Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We are celebrating how God loves us so much that he came in the form of a man to die on the cross for our sins and to be resurrected to life again. 
But do you know that the whole reason Jesus went through that exercise, paid that price on the cross, was so that you and me could experience abundant life. You see, John 10.10, Jesus says of himself, he says here, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life. They may enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. So, friend, the whole point of Jesus coming for humanity was to give us life in its fullest. Your best life. The one where you are most yourself flourishing in your own skin, enjoying every moment, both the ups and downs, the perfect and the imperfect. You know, can you imagine today if we were all seated here living with that kind of realness and freedom in our lives, wouldn't that be something? So the way I see it as a pastor, if we aren't experiencing abundant life, then the power of Jesus is not fully permeating our lives and this world. Because that is why Jesus Christ came. He came to give us life and life to its fullest. So right now, today, my sermon, The Real Me, I want to share with you four qualities that Jesus demonstrated in his life and taught and mentored in his disciples that will allow us to live into this abundance, into the real us that Jesus bought on our behalf. And in the process, I'm also going to share with you what are some of the behaviors we do that steal, kill, and destroy our joy and freedom. Because John 10.10 is a very interesting statement, right? In it, Jesus presents two sides. He says, my way is life and life to its fullest. But there is also a thief at work that is trying to do the opposite. To steal, kill, and destroy my abundance for you. So are you ready? So the first quality today I want to talk about is, number one, authenticity. You know, one of the things I love about my God is that he was such a badass, especially when you read read the Bible about what kind of human he was during his time on earth. Now, of course, when I say he was a badass and stood out, I'm not talking about the superficial kind of standing out, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I found this online and I just had to show it to you today. No, listen, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus stood out because of his physical appearance or his status in society. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible actually tells us there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to Jesus. And yet, the Bible shows us in the stories of his life that this God, man, drew throngs of people to follow him. And he turned the entire Roman Empire upside down with who he was and the kind of humanity that he demonstrated to people. You know, you will learn in the Bible that he angered the leaders of the Jews, his own people, because he refused to respect their status and fame. And he refused to join them as one of their political leaders. He made the religious scholars of his people uncomfortable because he had the power and revelation and abilities of a prophet, and yet he hung out with sinners and ordinary people instead of them. He perplexed the Romans, the conquerors of the Jewish people, because despite having the power of the people and the crowds behind him, this guy never revolted, instead advocated humility and pacifism. So when I read about the life of Jesus, I'm sometimes amazed also how alike his experience was to that of our generation. You know, Jesus was a pretty controversial figure. But not because he was shocking and flamboyant or talented or successful by the standards of the world or or how he was loved and a celebrity by the people around him. No, he was controversial and known for being radically humble, radically ordinary, authentic and relatable. Jesus was simply Jesus. Him. No pretense, nothing fancy, just real. And you know, what the top 1% of Jewish society and the Romans, what drove them crazy was that Jesus didn't care what they thought of him. You know, they would go to him and say, Jesus, you shouldn't be hanging around with sinners. And he would go, why? They are the people I'm here for. You know, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You should be taking back power from the Romans for the Israelites. No, 
Violence only begets violence. Then when his own people maligned him in order to get rid of him because they couldn't stand his popularity, when they brought him before the Romans to persecute him, the Romans said to him, hey dude, we can see that you're a good man. Defend yourself. And Jesus went, no thanks. You don't get what I'm doing. But how I am is the truth of how you should be living. You see, Jesus had this quality about him where he didn't feel the need to live up to anyone's expectations or anyone's box or anyone's label of who he should be. The only thing he cared about doing was to obey the reason why God, his heavenly father, has sent him to earth for. To be the son of God, to be the savior of the world. So this is done in the Bible that describes what happened when Jesus reached the height of his fame and controversy, okay? You see, everyone was trying to figure him out, including his own disciples. You know, Jesus didn't care what other people were saying, but his disciples who were following him started to care. And so they started going, Jesus, come on, you know, we need to answer to the people. You need to put out a statement, Jesus. You need to be Facebook official. You know, you need to tell people about who you are and what you're about. And so they keep pressing and they keep having their opinions and they keep talking. And finally, Jesus gets a little bit irritated. Well, in my imagination, he did. And he says to them, this is a story in Matthew uh, 16. And I'm going to read to you. It says that Jesus asked his disciples, all right, what are people saying about who the Son of Man is? And we were at dinner at that point of time, and the disciples were jabbering on all, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and you know, Jesus, you should handle the situation this way. And, and so when Jesus finally spoke, he got fed up. He said, what are people saying the Son of Man is? You know, and I imagine there was this pregnant pause, right, when he lost his temper. Awkward pause. And they're thinking to themselves, man, you know, our master is really upset. Now he's talking about himself in third person. him in third person they reply verse 14 says something he is john the baptist and jesus is right there at the table some say elijah some jeremiah or one of the prophets jesus is right there in front of them so he gets fed up drops his sarcasm and confronts them directly he presses them he says and how about you who do you say i am and luckily one of the disciples in the team is smart at least in this particular instance And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus came back and said, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. Now, you see, you're probably wondering what is going on here. Well, up to this point in the Bible, Jesus had only occasionally alluded to the fact that he was God's son. He would mention it here, a little bit here, and a little bit there when he was teaching people, but he never bothered to explain himself any further once he dropped the name. He was more concerned with ministering to everyone, with being God's son, more than declaring that he was God's son. And so this left a lot of room for doubt. And so the disciples were getting antsy, right? They were following him for two years. They wanted their piece of the fame. They wanted to be able to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, son of God. So Jesus, in this conversation, finally decides to put the matter to rest. Yes, I am the son of God. Satisfied? (laughs) And once he does, you know what he does next? Verse 20 says, he swore the disciples to secrecy. He made them promise that they would tell no one that he was the Messiah until the time had come. Man, Jesus, are you serious? You know, that is how much Jesus didn't care about titles and accolades and recognition and labels. And funnily enough, that was exactly what made Jesus Christ stand out. The fact that he didn't need to stand out. You know, not caring about labels and recognitions, you must understand, is what gives us access to an abundant life. You know, Jesus was trying to tell the disciples, guys, I don't need a persona to be considered the real me. I don't need to be Facebook official. I'm just too busy being, being me, being real, my mission, being authentic. 
It's funny how mind-boggling such a concept is for human beings, isn't it? You know, it's funny, right? Back then, they didn't have social media. But the patterns of pressure is still the same 2,000 years later. The pressure of conformity. Wanting to fit in. Wanting to stand out. Wanting to be labeled. Or, you know, other people wanting to label us or label Christ. But here's my warning for you today. Conformity will steal your joy. Listen, healthy caring about what people think is important is how we grow as people, right? You know, if I see someone who's living well, someone who is truthful, someone whom I can trust, who's my friend, to call me out when I'm being an idiot, you know, I care about what those people think because it's a healthy carry. It causes maturity and growth. They are my reference point. They are the iron that sharpens my iron. That's awesome. They make me my best authentic self. But unhealthy caring, that's conformity. And conformity is uniformity. It not just eliminates your weakness, it also starts to eliminate you. Your strengths, what makes you special, your uniqueness. So 2,000 years later, human beings are still struggling with the same existential challenges, just with better technology. We want to fit in. We want to be trendy and have the latest stuff. We want to eat at the latest places to stand out. And as much as people want to label us, we let people label us and box us up because we want to be acknowledged and accepted and recognized. And you know what the consequence of that response to life is? If you let it happen, it will steal your authenticity. You will spend so much time trying to be the person that others want you to be that you will have nothing left over to discover who God made you to be. You know, there's this awesome writer named Margaret Young who wrote this uh, in her book called Seeking Happiness. She writes, often people attempt to live their lives backwards. They try to have more things or more money in order to do more of what they want so they will be happier. But the way it actually works is the reverse. You must first be who you really are, then do what you need to do in order to have what you want. Isn't that profound? Listen, we all want to be accepted. We all want to belong. But to conform instead of being authentic will actually steal away the real you. You see, friends, listen, there's a big difference. And I hope that I say this and this stays with you for the rest of your life, young people. There's a big difference between fitting in and belonging. So, fun fact here, right? Recent studies in psychology actually show and prove that fitting in and belonging are two very different things. That fitting in, and this is mind-blowing, fitting in actually in reality gets in the way of belonging. Because fitting in is assessing what you need to do in order to be accepted. While belonging requires us to simply show up and be who we are. Furthermore, you know what? The studies actually show that fitting in actually creates fear and anxiety. While belonging attracts and creates a sense of love and safety. Come on, show of hands. Who wants love and safety in your life? That's why we try to fit in, right? You know, we're not really wanting to fit in. We're really searching for love and safety. We're searching to belong. And the secret, guess what? Is to be authentic. Come on, someone say with me, authenticity. But I want to push this a little deeper. Is that all right? So the amazing thing about Jesus was he never stopped at just him being his authentic self. He actively taught and cultivated authenticity in his disciples. So let's go back to that same passage, okay? So after the fantastic answer Peter gave, who am I? You are the son of God. Yeah, Peter, well done. (laughs) Jesus didn't stop there. The Bible says after Peter gets Jesus' real self right, Jesus now turns to Peter and says to him, and now 
I'm going to tell you who you really are. You are Peter, a rock. This is a rock on which I will put together my church. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Now, if you study the passage carefully, actually up to this point, Peter, who will one day become the well-known Saint Peter, right? His name actually wasn't Peter. His name was actually Simon, son of Jonas. Let me show you, just for all the new friends who are here are not familiar with the Bible, it says here in verse 17, Jesus came back, God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's his name. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teacher. My father says, heaven, God himself let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you really are. You are Peter, a rock. Listen, Simon's name had been a pain to him all his life. You see, in Jewish culture, names were an extremely important and weighty thing. A name was seen as a prophecy of a person's essence, life, and future. So, friends, I don't know what his parents were thinking because the name Simon literally means reed, and specifically a reed that blows wherever the wind blows. Can you imagine if you were his parent, you're literally naming your son, no backbone, no stability, wishy-washy. <laughs> and if you read the Bible's portrayal of Simon Peter's early life, you know, I know he comes off great in this story, right? But the rest of the time, this guy, true to his name, is unstable, emotional, one moment awesome, one moment a whole other opinion. You know, I imagine he must have grown up being laughed at. Yo, Mr. Unstable. Yo, Mr. Wishy-Washy. You know, when he became one of Jesus' 12 disciples, I imagine that the rest of the team, because they were imperfect people, probably looked down on him because he was so unstable. Yo, there goes Simon again, running his mouth off again. Over-enthusiastic answer, Simon. But Jesus refused to let Simon be trapped by labels, even by his own Jewish name. So Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, I don't care how people have labeled you. I don't care how you have labeled yourself. I'm going to tell you who you really are. You are Peter, which in Hebrew literally means large, immovable rock. And on you, I will put together my church. A church that is so strong, hell will not be able to stop it. And true to the naming of his identity, Peter became the leader of disciples. And today in Italy, the headquarters of the Catholic Church is built in honor of him. It's called St. Peter's Basilica. Why? Because Jesus called Simon Peter by his authentic self. You know, if you read about Peter's life, this moment didn't stop who he was in his imperfections or his strengths. He was still in his personality, very sanguine, very emotional. As a leader, he was hot-tempered. As a leader, sometimes he got insecure. But eventually, he came to a place where Peter was comfortable in his own skin, strong in his strengths, and accepting of his own shortcomings. And it was in that place of authenticity that Peter emerged a leader. So friend, listen, today, Jesus is calling each of us into an abundant life through authenticity. It doesn't matter what people have said. It doesn't matter how people have labeled you or the world has labeled you by its own standards, how you have labeled yourself. Jesus came to call out your true nature. One that is capable of living life to its fullest in God. So number one, authenticity, right? Second quality Jesus demonstrated and taught about a lot in the Bible is compassion. Now, when we speak of compassion, we Christians often think of Jesus' most famous teaching on criticizing, right? Matthew 7, 3 goes like this, you know, why do you see the splinter in your brother's or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own? <laughs> Come on, we all know people like that, right? <laughs> Truth is, heck, some of us have probably been that way before. Highly critical of other people, then completely compassionate only to ourselves. <laughs> Met people like that? introduced yourself to yourself lately? 
Right, so over and over, Jesus teaches us to be compassionate to others, gracious, non-judgmental, don't bully, don't be mean, and even if people sin against you, forgive them. Now, if you don't know compassion for others as a quality in your life, friend, I encourage you to get some. A Christian without compassion, heck, a human being with no compassion is a really ugly thing. Now, but listen, but for the rest of us here, right, who are more civilized and evolved, the fight for the real you is often a fight with self-compassion. You see, there's an even more important teaching for Jesus, and this is what the Bible calls the greatest command in the Bible. Matthew 22, 38 to 40 says, This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets, that means the whole Bible depends on these two commands. Love God, love people, as you love yourself. So an interesting observation I've made over my years of working with people is this. A lot of times, people who are critical of themselves, who cannot love themselves, they also struggle with being critical towards others. So, where does the lack of self-compassion that our generation struggles with come from? Well, listen, being judgmental always comes out of a perfectionistic inclination. And perfection always comes out of some sort of self-shame. You see, why do we work so hard to post pictures of ourselves, perfect pictures? The answer is because we are ashamed of who we are as we are. So where perfectionism exists, shame is always lurking. Shame is the birthplace for perfectionism. Now some of you are sitting here thinking, you know, come on pastor, you know, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm not ashamed of myself, at least I don't think so. Well, friend, listen, as a recovering perfectionist myself, let me explain to you what perfectionism and shame is, okay? It is essentially the belief that you are not enough. You know, have you ever had a friend who tells you they never study and is sure to fail their exam and then they score A1s? <laughs> you know, why do they do that? Because they are so afraid of failing or disappointing. They are trying so hard to receive approval from other people that they choose to underrate themselves in case they fail. So that they can avoid or at least feel less ashamed in their mind. They think that we're less ashamed when things go wrong. You see, striving to get perfect grades and, and be perfect on Instagram, dress trendy and perfect, is the exact same mechanism. We do it for approval. We get anxious about what's going to happen, what people will say, how people will comment, how many people will like us. To avoid feeling less than, we try to stage a more perfect version of ourselves. It's a shield to keep the feeling of rejection, of feeling ashamed, of feeling that we are not enough away. Yeah. Now, of course, studying hard and looking nice is a good thing. But the question is whether these things, doing it, causes us anxiety. And if it does, that's when it becomes unhealthy. Yeah. You know, when, when, when each of us is giving in to the pressure of being perfect, it becomes unhealthy. You know, you might even be doing things you are good at, doing the things you love even. But I have noticed when perfectionism, comparison kicks in, you can be doing what you love and that comparison will kill your passion. So let me give you another tip. Comparison will kill your dreams. You know, over and over, psych research is showing that perfectionism, shame, comparing yourself to others actually hampers success. It doesn't help it. And it's very often the path to depression, anxiety, addiction. And you know what addiction is? Addiction is avoidance. So you may not be drinking, but maybe you're Netflixing a little too much. And it leads to life paralysis. We become so afraid to put anything out into the world that could be imperfect. Yeah. 
We don't pursue our dreams because we have a deep fear of making mistakes or failing or disappointing others or being rejected. So we withdraw. We silence our true selves and our dreams. In other words, this not practicing self-compassion will literally kill your dreams. So, I don't think perfectionism is about whether you are or you are not. Perfectionism exists on a continuum. We all have some sort of perfectionistic tendency. It comes out in the situations where we feel the most vulnerable. For some of you, it could be studies. For some of you, it could be money. For some of you, it could be weight. For some of you, it could be dressing. For some of you, it could be sports. For some of you, it could be talent. For some of you, it could be leadership. Listen, learning to love and accept yourself is one of the most powerful teachings of Jesus that can set you free to be your real self. You know, another one of Jesus' most famous teachings is the passage where he tells people following him to stop being anxious. And it goes like this, Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or what you drink or what or about your body, what you wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow or seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Verse 27, who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work. They don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses the grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, won't God do much more for you, you people of weak faith? Verse 31, therefore don't worry and say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Gentiles long for these things. Your heavenly father knows you need them. But instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Now, you know, when people think of righteousness, when Christians throw around the word righteousness, right? Immediately, right, whether you're Christian or not Christian, you think, oh, they're talking about purity, they're talking about being perfect. But Jesus, in this famous passage, actually equates righteousness with not being anxious and comparing. He asks us to trust God that we will have enough. But more than that, you read very carefully, he's telling the people to trust God that they are worthy. That they are already of immense value to God without food, without clothes, without beauty. Listen guys, you are of immense value to God. And he loves you just as you are. You do not need to do more or be more or have more in order for him to love and accept you and bless you. So through Matthew 6, Jesus is commanding us, stop being anxious about your future. Stop comparing yourself. It's very interesting to do not hear, right? It sounds like, oh, it's so comforting. But actually, the the Greek text is in prohibitive text, which is like a command. Do not. Be anxious about your future. He's saying stop comparing yourself to what other people are eating and drinking and wearing. Stop saying it's not enough that you are not enough. Because as long as you do that, it will kill the real you. It will kill your passion and it will kill your dream. So number two, self-compassion. Learning something. Third quality, the third quality is resilience. So resilience, listen, is the ability to overcome adversity. Now you read Jesus' life, I don't know how much more adverse it can get. He was the survivor of an infant genocide. He was a refugee who ran because people were after his life. He was rejected by all the top people in his society because he was such a pariah and so radical. And then they put him on the cross and nailed him there like a criminal. 
I don't know, you know, if that is not resilience, I don't know why is. So there's this great psych researcher whom I love, and her name is Brene Brown, Professor Brene Brown. You've probably seen her on TED Talk. Her TED Talk on YouTube has gotten more than 39 million views. So this is one of the best, okay? And one of the qualities she researches is actually the quality of resilience. And here's what she says in her research she found were the five most common factors of resilient people. Number one, they are resourceful and have good problem-solving skills. Two, they are more likely than most people to seek help. Three, they hold the belief that they can do something that will help them manage feelings and to cope. Number four, they have social support available to them. Number five, they are connected with others such as family and friends. Now, what she found that was interesting, because when she researched this, she also looked at research that went back all the way to the 1970s, and these were the five she realized were consistent across the board. So, understand this, the real you is not all fun and easy. Millennials. <laughs> it's also hard work. Solving problems and planning. Resilience is working hard. Resilience, however, is also asking for help. Now, but what was even more interesting in her research was that she found a foundational attribute that tied all these five common factors together, holding them up. And that is this. Are you ready? The foundation of resilience factors is spirituality. A connection with God or higher power. So, when she talks about this, she's very careful. She spends one whole page trying to elaborate on this better. And she says, you know, it's not religion. It's not ritual, but a connected relationship with God or a higher power. So, she writes in her book that this is the best definition she could come up with. She says, spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. Practicing spirituality brings a sense of perspective, meaning, and purpose to our lives. And it makes, and it's what makes us resilient. It makes us able to be courageous in the face of adversity, to keep being our true selves and pursuing our dreams. So to make my point today, I thought it would be easier to get someone up here to share their story with you. Is that okay? So put a smile on your face and let's welcome Show into the stage. Hi everyone, my name is Sherwin and I'm currently serving my national service. This afternoon, I want to share with you how Jesus has helped me overcome anxiety and depression so that I can be free to pursue my dreams. Before coming to church, I was someone who was very insecure. Since I can remember, I've always wanted to be someone special, to be seen and recognized. I tried hard to excel in whatever was considered popular even if I didn't enjoy it. In my primary school, everyone was into soccer, so wanting to fit in, I started playing soccer even though I did not like it. In secondary school, I wanted to be seen as someone smart, but the fact was that I wasn't good in my grades, so I cheated. It got me through my anxiety in the moment, but deep down, I, I knew I just wasn't as good at studying as my friends. As time went by, I felt more and more lost. It was as if I was floating around life aimlessly, doing things based on what others thought. I started to wonder who I was and whether there was a point to my life. Thankfully, that was when a friend invited me to Revival Nation. Admittedly, I wasn't interested in God. <laughs> but, but I was curious because my friend had changed so much. He used to be cold and emotionless. But after coming to church, he was full of life. My first time to Revival Nation, 
I was so surprised that people here were so different from friends I had somewhere uh, had elsewhere. Everyone was friendly and welcoming, and I felt how interested they were in me, without me trying hard to be someone I'm not. So after attending my first service, I decided to come again for a second time. Uh, for a second time the next week. It was at the end of the service when everyone was worshipping and praying that I suddenly felt a deep sense of love overcoming me. Again, this surprised me. You see, I grew up in a pretty religious home where I was taught to fear gods. That if I did anything wrong, bad things would happen to me. And that was the perception I brought with me to church. But what I felt at service was totally different. Instead of fear and judgment, I felt an overwhelming sense of assurance. I felt my anxiety and fear breaking down and warmth and peace flooding my heart. After service, when Raymond, my Connect Group leader now, shared with me more about God, I immediately knew that what I felt was the love of God. God was so real that I gave my heart to Jesus that day and have never stopped coming church. Being a Christian did not automatically stop my shock insecurity. But having God, pastor and leaders and friends in church made all the difference. In sec 3, my results were so bad that I came out as one of the last few in my cohort. At that point, I wanted to give up. It seemed like everyone knew who they were and where they were heading. Everyone except me. It was then that pastor then sat me down. She told me that I wasn't stupid. Just because I wasn't good at some things, doesn't mean I'm not good at everything. But she also knocked some sense into me and said that in order to figure out what I want to do, I have to do what I need to do. Study hard first so that I can have the option to find and pursue my passions after. I knew God was speaking to me and I decided to act on what pastor said. I chose to study hard even though I did not know what it was for after. <laughs> and that was how I chanced upon my dream. <laughs> In order to distress and to fuel all my hard work, I decided to cook. I began to realize how much I liked it. And for the first time in my life, I felt passion for something. I started telling people around me that I found my dream job. There was to be a chef. Pretty much everyone laughed. <laughs> they either thought I was joking or that it would never happen in a place like Singapore. But pastors and friends in church didn't react the same way. They encouraged me to go for it. In 2018, I graduated with a diploma in culinary and catering management from Tomasi Polytechnic. I also completed a six-month internship at a prestigious Rillian Chateau restaurant, um, a French restaurant in Prov Provence, France, run by ex-Michelin star chef, Chef David Mollicon, who has now become a great friend and mentor in my life. What seemed like an impossible future is now a path I'm on, a path that might be different from what a traditional and safe career is, but a path that is giving me the freedom and confidence to be who I am. But of course, truthfully, this path is not without its challenges. There have been many times I've, shrug I've struggled with the need to be a superstar chef or been tempted to be sucked into kitchen politics to get ahead. But whenever this happens, God speaks to me. He reminds me of who I am in Him, that I am not defined by fame or external boxes and expectations that I am called to be a man of integrity, someone who is secure in himself and pursuing my future in an authentic and generous way. I want to be significant and satisfied, not just successful. I've also learned to tame my depression and anxiety with God. Whenever I felt messy, I've learned to pause and to rationalize, each time deciding to push forward with God. I've learned that with anxiety and depression, there might never be a cure for it in life, but there's God throughout life in this journey. My position in life shifted from chef as my calling to child of God as my calling. And no matter what, my roots and feet is grounded and found in God. My imagination of my future now is not just to open a restaurant to be rich and famous for introducing people to food, but to use my craft to make a difference. Recently, I started a side business running dinner services out of my home. I've been able to design culinary experiences and share my ideas about art and life through the food that I make. The dream is that one day I will be able to open a restaurant that connects human hearts and food. That through my craft, I'm able to share with more people about God's love and heart for people. 
I also want to open up a space designed by artists that can train young people and underprivileged youth to run a world-class restaurant service. My hope is to create culture change in the culinary industry where encouragement and teamwork becomes the driving forces to mentor and build people up. And I want to do this without losing myself, all the peace and confidence I found in God. I want to thank Pastor for building a church where young people can dream and become their best selves in God. Regina, Chen Xi and Ka Liang for always encouraging me and teaching me to become someone better. Friends in church who is always there for me, allowing me to share my heart and grow together. And lastly, God for assuring me of who I am and giving me a bigger vision, a life worth living for. Thank you. Amen. Come on. Clap for him a little bit more. Are you feeling hungry now? <laughs> so listen, connection gives us courage, which is my fourth quality that I want to speak to you about this afternoon. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read the Bible, I am amazed at what a courageous God we serve. You know, what a courageous God-man Jesus was. That he didn't care about what people thought. That he refused labels, you know, to be, you know, that he was unaffected by recognition. You know, that he was so happy and enough in his own skin that he could freely pursue his mission on this earth, the call that God, the Heavenly Father, had sent him with. I mean, listen, it takes courage. You know, Courage is what gives us access to our calling, our destiny, which is the point of being the real me. Listen, friend, there's a point to your life. There's a point to your life. And you won't get it by fitting into boxes. You won't get it by comparing yourself to others and trying to be like them. Your destiny, your destination in life, comes from living into the real you. And for that, you need courage. You know, Maya Angelou, an African-American activist, writer, and hero of mine, she's famous for saying this. She says, courage is the most important quality of all virtues. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You can practice any virtue erratically, but nothing consistently without courage. So all of us here, listen, we need courage to live our best life. And I can't think of anything more courageous than putting the real you out there into the world. Out on the line. Sure, you'll disappoint some people. Sure, there'll be the people that hate you. Not everyone will like you. But if your courage can make someone else brave and someone else be real, you would have made a bigger difference than all the Insta-likes in the world. Amen? So listen, we all want to be courageous, yes? Well, then understand this. Courage needs company. You see, a lack of connection can destroy your future because it deprives you of courage. Did you hear that? Yes. Courage needs company. Courage comes from connection. Not just the friends and family that can help us in our journey, but a connection to a higher power, and that is Jesus. You know, after Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, his disciples took over the ministry, Peter and the whole lot of them. Now, this really, of course, pissed off the religious leaders who were the ones who sent Jesus to the cross because they thought they had stopped the man who had taken over all the power and popularity. But then his disciples started healing the sick and taking care of the lame and the blind and people, more and more people started to follow Jesus through them. And they were perplexed. And so one day Peter and John had gone to the temple, the main synagogue in Jerusalem to pray. And on the way there, they met a lame man who was sitting at the gate. And they healed the lame man. And of course the crowd started to gather and they started to preach the gospel. And people started to get saved and follow Jesus too. And this is what was written, okay? Acts 4.13 says, Now when they, the critics 
saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed. And they realized that these guys had been with Jesus. So how were they so bold and powerful in the world? These guys were uneducated. They were untrained. They were not scholars. They were not speakers. And you know what the Bible says? The critics, the haters, this is their conclusion. They realized that Peter and John had been with Jesus Christ. And because they had been with Jesus Christ, they had now become as powerful and provocative as Jesus had been. No degrees, no formal training. They were just them. Some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, some were accountants, some were educated businessmen like Nathaniel. Most of them were fishermen. One of them was John who was 15 years old. These guys were just being themselves and they were turning the whole world upside down. So listen, young people, I want you to know, you don't need to be talented. You don't need to be rich or recognized or experienced to live a great life. You just need a connection with Jesus. A connection that makes you resilient. A connection that makes you courageous. A connection that makes you authentic and self-compassionate and compassionate that you dare to bring who you are into the world and believe that it is enough. You see, do you know that the root word of the word courage is actually the Latin word core, okay? So courage comes from the Latin root, which is the word core. And core is actually the word for heart in Latin. Now, in one of its earliest forms, the word courage actually had a very different definition from how we define courage today. And that is, courage originally meant to speak one's mind by telling one's heart. You know, today, you and me, our generation, we define courage as heroics, as standing out, as being strong. You know, it's no longer about openly being who we are, our real selves, how we are feeling, all of us good and bad, our authentic, compassionate self, compassionate, resilient self. No, it doesn't mean that thing anymore, but this is what courage originally meant. To speak one's mind by telling one's heart, to bring all of you into the room and out in the open. So I want to encourage you today, real courage is putting the real you on the line. And the ability to do that comes from Jesus Christ. From hearing him tell you who you truly are, from letting him teach you the values that he lives, by allowing him to be connected with you, to keep you company in both your highs and lows and helping you to be resilient through his love and his strength. You see, when you have Jesus... You have access to courage and all other virtues. Nothing can steal, kill, or destroy the abundant and full life that he bought for you by his sacrifice on the cross.